to the Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, our goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices and instead look for the processes and the questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. Happy fall, everyone. I am Angela Brown, the manager of B2B Brand Strategy at Niche, and today we are talking to Julie Falstick. Informed by over 25 years of experience in school leadership and change management, Julie founded Stony Creek Strategy in 2022 to support school leaders making change. With thousands of readers each month, her talking out of school newsletter, which I am a huge fan of, identifies and articulates patterns and practices holding schools back from reaching their highest potential. Before founding SCS, Julie served in a variety of school leadership roles, including academic dean and then assistant head at Walnut Hill School for the Arts in Massachusetts, and culminating in the role of head at the Westover School in Middlebury, Connecticut. Julie started her career as an English and history teacher, and she holds a BA from Smith College and an MFA in creative writing from Emerson College. She currently lives in Brantford, Connecticut. Julie, welcome. I am so pumped about this episode. Thank you, Angela. And I just also want to say thank you because you were an early adapter of um, Talking Out of School and a champion on LinkedIn. And I'm really grateful for your support. Um, And it's just been delightful to interact with you um, in uh, in the LinkedIn space. So this is fun to actually meet you. I, I completely agree. And I'm so thrilled because, you know, I I subscribe to a lot of newsletters. I get all of the emails from all of the places. And I just think that the depth of thought that goes into your content is so powerful. The observations that you've made across different functional areas in schools. It's not just about headship. It's not just about being in admissions. It's not just about communications. It's the intersection of all of these different areas. And I have really respected your deep understanding of what it's like to walk in all of those different proverbial shoes. And so um, I'm happy to be a champion of that content and that thought leadership and so thrilled to have you on the podcast today. So today we are talking about how independent schools can rethink their approach to admission strategies. But first, we have our two standard questions to get through. I'm very excited to hear your responses to these. The first one is, what is something that you tried that didn't work and what did you learn? Wow. I love that question because there were so many things I could choose from. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So... The one that came to mind because it meant the most to me and it really did just flat out fail was a PG program at Westover where we, when we, we did some investment in it, we really designed a curriculum. It was for girls. It was, we had research saying that there was a room for this in the market because you know, there wasn't a sports focused option. It was around community service. It was around a curriculum about exploring your identity. It was about learning how to live away from home. And we were all really excited about it. And it went nowhere. Uh, we, we really didn't even get many inquiries for it. And we tried it for two cycles. And then I think if we had held on a long, longer, and then I left. So then it's in limbo. I mean, the, the program still exists somewhere. But I, I don't know if it's being actively promoted. And, you know, if they want to do that, that's great. But I still really believe there is a space for this. Mm-hmm. But it just did not get traction. And I guess what I learned from that is you can have a really good idea and you can go about it in a really sensible, thoughtful way. And you can even do your research. And sometimes it just doesn't connect. Yeah. And then you move on. And that is a valuable lesson to learn yeah. Uh, and then to like release it. And then maybe it's time comes sometime later because I don't think anything's ever wasted, but, but it was interesting to reflect on that. That's a, I like the point that nothing is ever wasted because I think sometimes it can be really disappointing, you know, when you put a lot of effort into launching something new or bringing an idea to life and then it, it falls sort of flat, but there's always something to learn from that. And so 
Um, I think that's part of why we asked that question. You know, we want to hear about successes and impact, but it's important to talk about the failures too, because it's not all sunshine and roses, you know, the, the failures, how we learn. And so I think that's a really great takeaway. Yeah. And I would also say too, that I think there is a lot of glamour around innovation. Oh yeah. <laughs> inspiring leadership and all this. Yeah. And you can design something that is inspiring and innovative that just has, that can't find its market. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to listen to that. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. So the next question is, what practices do you use to brainstorm and bring new ideas into your work? I have to say, I don't think I have anything particularly innovative here. <laughs> dog walking is a big one because I walk my dog pretty much first thing. We go on a pretty long walk and usually all kinds of ideas are like popping on that walk. And then I have started just doing a, when I get home, I've started a new document that's just basically labeled post dog walk. And I just dump everything in there. And it's already been helpful. I mean, it's not all gold for sure. Yeah. Like sometimes the thing you think is gold when you're on the walk, <laughs> days later, you're like, oh, full stick. <laughs> but it has been interesting to try to bring a little more discipline to that. The other thing I would say is I am just a big fan of novel experiences. And I don't even mean like delightful novel experience. <laughs> One of the things I really appreciated when I was head is that you do a lot of mundane travel, like being stuck in the Detroit airport for three hours when your connection is late. And that often was really fruitful time because you're kind of bored, you're people watching, you've got a lot of things on your mind. And often that was a place where ideas would start to take hold. So I miss that and I do try to replicate that if I can. And I'm also a big fan of retreats and getting your team off site. Again, novel experiences. You know, even that three hour van ride when you're going up to the retreat space, again, it's not glamorous, but sometimes those are where you're just out of your normal routine. And I think that's always helpful. I love that. I'm actually, I'm going to steal that dog walk document <laughs> idea because I walk my dog in the middle of the day every day. And I do think there's something to be said about just getting away from your desk mm -hmm. and the natural moments of ideation that seem to come from that. Yeah. Um, but having a place to put it all. So ideally you're not, you know, waking up at 3 a.m. and feeling like you need to grab your send an email. That's a yeah. much healthier way to approach that. So I, I really love that, even though it's not, you know, the spiciest idea, but that's so many great ideas come to us when we're doing something outside of our offices or away from our desk. And it's, it's important to have a way to document those. So now we're going to get into the meat of our discussion and dig into admission strategy. So this is, we are recording this at the end-ish of September of 2023. So I have just returned from the Enrollment Management Association's annual conference. I'm actually between admissions conferences right now with NACAC happening this week as well on the higher ed side. So this is a very relevant topic. And one of the sessions that I attended had panelists from EMA's DEIJ think tank, and there was a discussion about the need for schools to evolve their admission strategies with the changes that are happening in the market, which seems obvious, but I think that sometimes we can get into autopilot a little bit with the way that we approach admission marketing, lots of other administrative functions. So based on the work that you're doing with schools today, can you share some of the biggest challenges that you've been seeing with some of the more kind of tried and true standard ways that a lot of schools might be thinking about admission? Mm-hmm. This is a great question because I think we are in the middle of this very fundamental societal shift that I don't think any of us have completely come to terms with. You know, post-pandemic, there seem to be things happening in the economy that even very accomplished economists don't completely understand. I do think that, you know, there's a generational shift. The baby boomers are retiring. So there are so many things happening and I think that schools tend to rely on the tried and true. 
Yeah. And that is not going to serve them. So the way I have seen it manifest in ways that are holding places back um, are really like they, they, they're under three headings and they're under three categories. But I would say the general heading is question your assumptions. Because the first one I would say is, I think a central problem can be pushing your agenda when you don't know what the agenda of the family is. Because Mm -hmm. right now you cannot assume. And I think for years, and you know, I'm, I have mostly been in the high school space. There's been this assumption that you're pushing like say rigor in academics. Yeah. And you can be halfway down the garden path promoting your APs and find out that really what the parent is interested in or what this child is interested in is a culture of belonging. You know, how am I going to fit in here? Or it could be about is the child with anxiety, you know, and then all of the AP talk is triggering all this anxiety or that the family is worried about learning loss or the family is worried. I, I also think that as schools that have an admission process, we are also looking at a new era where elitism is somewhat suspect with a large population of people. That is so so real. (laughs) So selling this fact that you are elite, Mm. I think can sometimes backfire on you when really you have a parent who is concerned about something like the end of affirmative action and really wants a diverse, vibrant community of belonging. And that elite often, it starts to read as exclusive, not inclusive. So I think that's, that is a central message just about questioning your assumptions. And when you're leaning on all the things that you love about the school, if you've been there a while, that the school culture loves about itself, it may well not be what that family is looking for. And then you're going to be at cross purposes. So I would say that's one big one. And then I would say the other two are kind of sides of the same coin. One is your office is all relationship and no strategy. So that you have all this Mm. hospitality and you've leaned into the hospitality and you have hired with people who are all about the hospitality and love working with families, but you have no strategy around you know, the points in the funnel that you are trying to amplify or where you can be making progress or whether or not you have mission matched families. Um, so you've got all this effort, but it's not being focused in any ways that can be the most productive. And the flip side of that, I think in hot markets, you can develop a office culture that is somewhat defensive and keeps parents at arm's length. And I know it, you know, again, especially post-pandemic, there's a lot of anxiety out there, even among adults, and parents can be difficult to deal with. I totally get that. But you don't want to develop an office culture where you're not partnering with the parent because Mm -hmm. like, the first line of your job description should be relationship builder. I mean, I would say that for anyone in an independent school. like That should be the first line of your job description is relationship builder. And if you're going into it with, I'm afraid I'm going to get yelled at, which I'm not saying that's not a valid concern. (laughs) People are passionate about their kids and they're worried about their kids. But if you lead with that, you know, parents are anxious too. And then you just create this, it's not productive. It's not a productive way to go forward. So I would say, and you know, people like a good example of this is have an actual person a parent can get in touch with Mm -hmm. during the admission cycle. Don't have it be, hello at school.org. Yes. You know, because (laughs) that is a classic distancing technique. Mm. And parents know that and they're anxious about it. And the other thing I'll just say about this one issue is just always remember in this process, the admission officers are symbols of power and authority. Like Mm. you might not think that. Say you're an assistant, assistant director, and you're in your mid-20s and it's like your first job, but yet still you are a figure of authority and power to this parent who's really anxious about their six-year-old. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's something to keep in mind as you're designing and evaluating how processes are working in your department. There's so much 
to unpack there. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I, I, I know, I know. <laughs> but I also, I mean, I, I completely agree with everything that you said, and I, I want to make a a couple of callbacks, starting with this theme of elitism and how that can manifest in a lot of different ways. And it's something that I've actually, it's so interesting when you go from being in-house and you're mostly observing how your immediate peer schools are behaving from a parent and, and student recruitment standpoint. But to be able to take a step back and see how that plays out at a national level more broadly, it's been, and just with this, that's been happening, but it's coincided with the cultural shifts that you've talked about. And I really do believe that independent schools in general have embraced the idea of belonging and inclusion wholeheartedly, mm-hmm. but there can be times where the way that they show up in the marketplace conflicts with that. And I would really challenge schools, both on the admission side and the Marcom side, to really think about that as mm-hmm. they are thinking about the traditions that they're amplifying and even some of the imagery that's being used, because I still think we're very much in a place where there's a good percentage of new families that are moving over from public schools into independent Mm -hmm. schools that have no prior experience with independent schools. They're probably going into the process with a lot of assumptions about Mm -hmm. what independent school culture is like. And you want to make sure that you're not unintentionally reinforcing some stereotypes that might exist around what it's like to be part of an independent school community and the types of families that are part of a certain community because you don't want to unintentionally alienate families that may not fit that stereotype, you know, of the blue blazers and the, the, you know, a lot of the things that tend to be associated with these communities. And I say that because I see it a lot, you know, on websites, on social media channels. And it's like, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't highlight your rowing team, but also make sure that that is being balanced out with community service and other aspects of what you're doing to show that you're not a one-dimensional institution. Mm -hmm. It's so funny you bring up the rowing team because what I was thinking when you were talking is the picture of the lacrosse game. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But it's the same difference, right? Same Um, difference, same difference. The thing is, is that I don't think as, I know I never thought of myself as working at elite places. And I worked at small places that, you know, for one reason or another, were kind of underdogs. But for the general population, any school that has an application process, like the kinds that we do, is considered elite. Absolutely. And so it's having that self-awareness that even though you might be like, but we work with kids and we love kids and we give away a ton of financial aid all the great things. Mm -hmm. But most people, they still refer to us as private schools. Yes. Not independent schools. (laughs) That's just a fact. And I also know for SEO, people get that advice to put private somewhere because it helps. (laughs) So, but you've got, but that in and of self indicates elitism. So it's a, it's a complicated thing. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't be proud of their heritage, but also, a lot of these schools were built by the elite for the elite, and it's in yes. the fabric in ways that is hard to sometimes deconstruct. Yeah. So how are you just honest about it and then trying to also evolve towards more of a 2023 culture? Absolutely. I think that's great. And I just want to remind people again to ensure that your prospective families have real human beings that they can connect with because I have been saying for years that admission at or hello at or fill in the blank generic email address. I had always viewed it as more of a point of friction for a family because you're not getting the immediacy or the human connection that you can get from interacting with an actual person. 
But your point that it's also a subtle distancing move is very interesting and very powerful because that's the last thing that I think any admission office wants to do with a prospective family. So that's a really important call out. Yeah, I would say that, I mean, communication is really all about, to me, and I'm not a pro, I'm just an <laughs> amateur here, is it's all about, again, trying to walk in other people's shoes so you know how to connect with them. It's not about you just forcing your agenda towards people. And I think there is still a lot of confusion in schools about that fact. Communication isn't just output. It's about how you foster a relationship. Yes. And I think that's a crucial difference that, and it's a framework. And then the framework shapes everything. And then within it are these messages you're sending, like whether it's, you know, Julie at school.org or whether it's admission at school.org, you are communicating something with that. So it's something yeah. to be aware of. That's great. So for the schools that are navigating these challenges well, it's probably safe to say that there's some strong leadership and collaboration that are big factors in that success. And that's something that you've talked about a lot, which is, is so needed in this space. Are there some ways that heads of school can partner more effectively with and support their enrollment leaders. Because one of the things that I love that you call out in a blog post that you wrote on this topic, which I'll link to in the show notes, is that there's this distinction between wanting a magician and <laughs> having someone that you're going to partner with, mentor, coach, and support. So I would love for you to talk more about that. Well, in, enrollment is the core of what we do at schools, right? It really is. It's all about the kids. And I just want to highlight this, that the director of enrollment management has an extremely hard job, that they are both the face of the school and one of its chief representatives, but they also need to be managing to net tuition revenue because the school has to operate. That's just a reality. And I think all schools at, to one degree or another have to deal with that. The thing is, too, is they're often paid less than directors of development. Mm. They're often given less, they have less respect because directors of development often are doing exotic things. <laughs> the director of enrollment management is a very visible person around the internal community. And the biggest thing, and this is a huge pressure, is that their success or failure, quote unquote, about what the opening number is in September often sets the tone for the whole year. So either you're starting off, we're full, we're full, and isn't this wonderful? Or you're like, well, we didn't quite make, you know, we're not full, but, but, and then try <laughs> to give in the good news and the bad news. Yeah. But if you can only imagine the level of pressure that is, I mean, it's a huge pressure for the head, but it's also a huge pressure for the director of enrollment management. So I feel really passionately about this because throughout my senior admin career, I was deeply involved with the admission office at Walnut Hill as the academic dean and then as assistant ed, partnered with them. So I really understood where they were coming from and the complications of the job. And so then when I came to Westover, it was very important to me. And it, you know, it took a few years to develop a partnership with that office. Mm -hmm. But I knew that because of that level of that, the visibility and the external pressure that brings just even internally, that it was important to be identify as a member of that team because mm -hmm. you always wanna be their cheerleader, I think publicly. Yeah. So even if things don't go well, that is not, that's on you as head in the end, you know? So it's a, you wanna be, you wanna be supportive of your DEM because you wanna be setting them up for success. And the other ways to set them up for success is that you really have to get familiar with what they do, the challenges they face, and also the intricacies of the net tuition model, net tuition revenue model. And the thing is, I just was fortunate because that was really part of what I did as a senior admin for years, and I saw it evolve. If you're ahead and you're coming in and you, you don't have that knowledge, 
you really need to spend some time to understand what the challenges the director of enrollment management faces. It doesn't matter whether you're struggling or again, whether you have a success problem in enrollment. It's a complicated job. Yeah. And it has just gotten more and more complicated, again, post-pandemic with culture wars. There's a lot of things, going, a lot of emotions going through that office, as well as a lot of money is at stake yeah. for these parents. I mean, this is a big investment they're making. And the head's managing often a multi, is almost always a multi-million dollar budget, even for a small school. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot on the line here. And it, if the head, the head needs to have some empathy, but the other thing about getting to know both the data side and the operation side of enrollment management is then you have to be in a position to push your director of enrollment management when sometimes they need to be pushed. Right. And the last thing I will say about this is that I also feel very strongly that then when there are kids where there is a question about whether they are mission matched Mm. and appropriate for admission, the final call should be with the head of school. And the head of school has to be clear where their line is. Because I think that one one of the lines from the post that got a lot of, I think, appreciation from directors enrollment management is that every year they're rolling a rock up a hill to a chorus of complaints. Mm, And I think that there can be kids you're taking a risk on. And I am a big fan of taking risks on kids. Like you want to take, you know, measured and appropriate risks. You don't want to create toxicity in the community. But I think kids, kids are kids and they deserve a shot, you know, but that has to be on you. Because when you are taking even an educated risk, that can easily blow back on the director of enrollment management, which I think contributes to burnout Yeah, and does not help them do their job. But I feel very strongly about it because I feel like I've seen, especially when the going gets tough, directors of enrollment management who maybe aren't always given clear goals, mm-hmm. all the information is not shared with them who don't have good relationships with the CFO, which that is part of the head's job is to foster a good partnership there. And then, you know, kind of get hung out to dry when things don't work. And there are just so many ways you can stop that before it gets to that point. And then it's win-win for everybody. Yeah, that's, uh, it's very, very true. And I, I think that sometimes that can absolutely get lost is that the head of school is really the cornerstone of the relationships that exist on the senior leadership team. Mm -hmm. And it's so important too, to make sure that it's very clear to the community that your DEM has, like you've got their back, you know, (laughs) and that's, and that's something that I, I think that's just leadership 101, you know, that ultimately you have people who are doing this work for you, but you own the the successes and the failures, but not just the successes. If something goes wrong, you've got to be able to step in and and come from a place of support and also be willing to, you know, put your shield up, but (laughs) take some of the blowback that can come that can come from that. So Yeah. yeah, and also I think sharing with the community some of the complications of the enrollment management landscape. Because again, and, and I think that's whether you are struggling for enrollment or whether you are having great success, because I think success problems can be as complicated for a community to manage as the struggle problems. But as a head, like to articulate that as much as possible is people can take it. I think there's a lot of times there's a a desire to to protect the community and I think it's, I think it is much healthier to share what is going on to some degree. Like it's not their problem, right? you know, to solve, but I think to just give them some sense of what is actually going on, I think is generally appreciated. Yeah. Context is always helpful. Yeah. Context is always helpful. And that can help you get around some of the, you know, the rumblings that can happen when people are developing their own theories. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like, of course it's going to happen. Always, um, always. And I also just want to say too, is that it doesn't, nothing I said, and believe me, I have pushed 
admissions people. I can be tough and, you know, certain times you got to get some things done. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying, just to be clear to the heads out there, I know it's (laughs) a hard job in general being ahead right now. And I know there are, again, it's complicated to do it all, but I do think you have to try to bring that blend of at least understanding what's going on and communicating that to your direct reports, as well as then pushing them when they need to be pushed. Nice way to tie it, tie it all together. <laughs> so this next question is is about the people that I know and love, the Marcom directors out there as a as a former director myself. Another point that you make in your blog post on this topic is the importance of having enrollment and communications leaders who work well together, respect each other's expertise, which I I don't think anyone can disagree with. But it's also important to see your Marcom leader as a strategic advisor to your admissions team. And that's that's something that I continue to see where there's still this perception that your communications leader is the email signature and style guide person. And that connection is not made to the impact that they have at admissions or fundraising for that matter. So can you talk a little bit more about the role that marketing and communications can and should play in admissions work? Because I think for the schools that there are certainly situations where their communications leader is the email signature and style guide person, but that's not sustainable. <laughs> so I see this as a question for the people where there's opportunities for growth and maybe some reminders that a lot of the work that happens in admissions and development cannot happen with marketing and communications. Yeah. Well, first of all, I do think communications is still the great underappreciated function <laughs> in independent school. So I will never miss a chance to say that. (laughs) Um, I think it is not fully appreciated as a sort of a professional discipline in and of itself. And that there are people with expertise and that just because we all communicate doesn't make you a communications expert. And I think, as you said, is it the email signature and style guide? And, you know, maybe the person who edits the magazine, I think. Yes. It's sort of the old way of looking at it. But really what the communications director, what and their, that whole function does is they are the guardian and champion of the brand. Mm-hmm. And I know, I think the word brand triggers some people, <laughs> corporate, but it's not corporate. It's actually a way to have discipline in communicating who you authentically are. Absolutely. So it is not about some kind of like fancy Madison Avenue woo woo. It is, (laughs) it's really a tool to communicate who you are, what your values are in, in ways that connect with people. And that is crucially important right now to have that discipline. And thank God for you communications directors out there who are, are the guardians of these brands. Cause as my good friend Michelle Levy from Caravan Brand Partners says, you, know, you have a brand even if you don't think you do. Mm-hmm. You have a reputation out there. So you need to be burnishing it, leveraging it, directing it. And that is the job of communications. And again, it happens at all levels. That whole like admissions at a school.com, that is either part of your brand or not. I mean, in terms yeah. of maybe your brand is like we're very standoffish and elitist and it's going to take you eight steps to find a human. If you want to be the warm, welcoming place mm-hmm. where being inclusive is part of who you are, then you probably want the, you know, a Brown at a school.com. So mm-hmm. anyway, um, so that's my general take on communications. With admission right now, there are so many different communication channels you can be leveraging and also you've got communication channels the kids are on, you've got communication right. channels the parents are on, you've got communication channels your alums are on, and there's still you know print media, some schools that's gonna be super relevant, some schools that's not gonna be relevant at all. Mm-hmm. So you have press relations. So you have all these different things that go into the communication function and how that can be best leveraged. What I have seen is when the communication office and the enrollment management function are tight 
when they are meeting regularly, they are elevating each other. So it's an exchange of ideas. So you have basically the brand champion in the communication director, and you have the face of the school in the director of enrollment management. Like that synergy is gold. Yeah. So, and especially you have the director of enrollment management who's going out there and they're helping to iterate your messaging because they're seeing what connects, what maybe doesn't connect as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, we did a brand polish uh, at Westover, I think either my first or second year that they're redoing now, but that lasted almost 10 years. Yeah. 10 years. I mean, that is some excellent work. Yes. Yes. So, and it, it, ha- it also just helps focus everything. It plays into the issue I talked about, which is you can be all relationship and no data. Mm-hmm. Because what it can do is you have your data about what metrics you want to move, and then you use that messaging that you're, you've developed for the to promote the brand. You bring that together, and that's really when you can move the needle. So I think the communications, good communications function helps to keep the admission office focused. And also as enrollment management is bringing back ideas to communications, they can keep thinking about, okay, now we need, you know, however they're using, especially social, I think because that is so dynamic, Mm -hmm. they're bringing back ideas about, you know, what is going to connect and what isn't going to connect. So I think it's, it is very powerful and I think it is very neglected. It's yeah. not just about the view book. It is an ongoing, vibrant partnership when it is at its best. Absolutely. I mean, I, I had the privilege of working very closely and collaboratively with two different um, enrollment leaders in my previous role, and it makes a world of a difference. I mean, I think I was very fortunate because I, I learned very quickly just in speaking with peers at other schools that that was not common. But when those two offices can work closely and collaboratively and synergistically, it really is magical. It's magical. And it, it takes the guesswork out of what the other team is doing. Like I, I just, it's hard for me to imagine that a school can be successful in the long run if you don't have that close relationship between admissions and communications. I completely agree. If communications is just treated as like we need a brochure or we need this web page updated, you're, it, it, that's meaningless. I mean, you might as well farm that out. That is not someone who is contributing to really moving your mission forward, right? which that's the goal. Well, and as we all learned in the early days of COVID, if if a crisis hits, then you're in real trouble because you really, ideally, you should have a communications leader who can help you navigate a crisis. 150%. And again, that is also why having one role is inadequate in yes. the communication office, where it really is, it's a function you can have some in-house, you can have some things that you outsource, but you're not going to find one person who has, again, can edit the magazine and is also going to be super great on crisis communications. You can find people who have a few of the skills. You're right. not going to find everything. So you have to adequately resource it because if you don't, you are going to pay. Yes. Capital P. And there is nothing like having that partner that you can rely on in the communication office when you are the head of school. Absolutely. Shout out to Lauren Castagnola. Yes. One of <laughs> colleagues at Stony Creek Strategy, but she is the best. Yes. And I and I will I will say I I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but I really applaud my former employer, Flint Hill School in Oakton, Virginia, for splitting my role in two because I think it was a necessary change. And I do think it's impossible to expect one person to understand all of the ins and outs of digital communications and also edit the magazine and manage vendors and do crisis comms and provide logos to swim coaches. It's a, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, so ask me about that, guys. I still have those job descriptions. Totally agree. <laughs> so I'm going to switch gears a little bit to 
our favorite topic in the <laughs> independent school space. And this is one that's top of mind for me as well, because I'm in the process of finalizing the summary of our, our parent survey, which we do every year. We asked a lot of questions about a lot of different things, some new, but one of the things that really seems to be standing out this year is that there is some increasing price sensitivity. And we know that tuition increases every year with very few exceptions. There are some schools that have taken the bold step of doing tuition resets, but there are risks associated with that, as, mm-hmm. as we all know. But the flip side of that, and I, I know we were saying this 20 years ago, those continuous increases are not sustainable. At some point, we're going to get to a place where you're going to run out of people who have an appetite for these continuous increases, especially at a time where tuition at many independent schools is very well into the mid five figures. And so I, and this is, we're seeing it in higher ed as well. You know, our surveys of students are showing that not tuition costs at a certain threshold are an automatic DQ as far as, far as, as students are evaluating the colleges that they want to attend. We're in the middle of a very big student loan crisis, payments slated to restart very soon. And so I don't even know where to begin with this, but I would love to hear your perspective on how schools can even start to tackle this issue. How should they be thinking about this issue? And what are some institutions that you think might be handling this well at this point? Ugh, that's that's a, good, a bonus question. I mean, I will just say it's literally your that's how this question is like literally the million dollar question. <laughs> because in my opinion, from what I have reading the tea leaves of everything that's going on out there, I think we are at the point where tuition has jumped the shark. I really do. I mean, I, I know we've I feel like we've been talking. I was I came into independent schools in the 90s. Yeah. And I feel like people were talking about it then. Because yeah. I've always been at boarding schools. But I think we're actually there mm. because it's just getting to the point and I'm actually, I'm putting together, I'm writing a piece about hiring for Friday. Ooh. And one of the things that I did was I made, because my sister started in independent schools in 1981. I started in 1996. In 1981, a senior year of college was around $10,000 and her starting salary at an independent school was about $10,000. And then I started in 96 and in 96 call it a year of college tuition was like 22,000. And I think my starting salary was 18,000 and an apartment because I was a dorm parent. So again, about comparable. Yeah. Now we're in a situation where you have an $80,000 tuition room and board. And mm-hmm. the other things, other numbers were also tuition room and board. And maybe, and I, again, I'm just speaking in terms of, you know, a boarding, boarding situation, the lowest you could get away with was like 40,000 in an apartment. And that is a huge difference. Yeah. And I know time has gone by, but it's just, this, there's a lot of ways this is unsustainable. So I would say, I wish I had some great formula. I think there's also a way we have created this hell for ourselves because <laughs> part of the problem is is that this has never been a situation where cost and price had any relationship. Yeah. Really became revealed during the pandemic when as boarding schools, you were like, okay, well, if the kids aren't coming back to board, what are we going to charge them? Mm -hmm. And then you're trying to calculate out what the actual cost of boarding is. And that starts to become complicated. And, you know, does it all really add up? So the thing is tuition room and board or tuition for day school has never really covered all the costs. So then you have your annual fund and other and your endowment. So the problem is now we were always kind of running to catch up and running these programs that need a huge amount of resources. Mm-hmm. And the biggest cost is salary and benefits. Yep. But we were never covering the costs. And now we're getting to the point where the costs are huge. And, and you're right. I mean, at least over the time I was at, even tuition capable families Mm -hmm. were beginning to be like, and you want me to give to the annual fund? (laughs) You know, there's very few people where this amount of money does not at least pinch 
If not, take you off the table altogether. Absolutely. Even when you're talking about the number, the amount of financial aid you're giving away. And the other problem is colleges and universities have federal help. There's federal student loans available. Yes. We do not have that, that flow of revenue. Mm-hmm. So how people are managing to do this, and I salute the commitment to independent schools, and also, I think we're not going anywhere because kids need options. Mm-hmm. You know, not every kid is a great fit for their local public school. So, you know, and there's a whole bunch of other cases to make for independent school, but just at bottom, yeah, families need choices. So, I again, I wish I had some really glamorous answer. I think the answer is really more like there's a hundred adjustments that need to be made in terms of your model in terms of you know staffing in terms of you know the all the programs you're running in terms of fundraising Mm -hmm. but again that's not endless i've seen a lot of strategic plans that just conclude with and we need a bunch more fundraising (laughs) again like there's no free lunch there's no magic bullet here right but what is a reasonable increase you can make and then also how are you leveraging your campus how are you serving your community with your campus? What are some ways that you can turn that into additional revenue? Mm-hmm. Again, I've always said for years that the additional source of revenue is like the great white whale. Right. <laughs> that. But even if you come up with some modest, you can make a dent in what you're trying to do to bring down your costs and then at least stop tuition where it is. The other thing that I, for reasons I won't go into now, I have started to have some conversations about some of the models in the UK. And it's very interesting to me that there's a foundation model in the UK that I'm really just learning about where many schools, there'll be a group of schools that it's under one foundation. And then there's cost sharing. And of course, they don't have to worry about the healthcare costs, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. huge for schools. Oh, sure. But other ways that you are sharing costs across a group of institutions. And that can also include fundraising or endowment pooling. I think that could be really powerful. Mm -hmm. I will say from a practical political standpoint, it sounds very complicated to institute in the United States. But I think I would love to see a group of schools maybe get together and try that because I think it could be be a real source of strength Mm -hmm. for schools to be sharing resources on all different kinds of levels and even if you're physically close enough to be able to share some programs, because the other real problem with schools is that they don't murder their darlings so that you have historic programs that maybe are not appealing to the same cohort anymore. Right. And you don't right. roll them up. It's Well, first of all, it's hard to roll up a program. Mm-hmm. But I think it is just very hard when you have there's a psychological belief in who you are and what that means and what some of these programs mean and change is hard and it involves feeling bad and experiencing grief and people avoid that like the plague and leaders don't want to touch it because they've got enough controversial things to deal with. (laughs) But I think unless people get real about what is fueling your forward momentum and fulfilling your mission and what is a drag on the institution, Unless people can get really real about that, I think costs are just going to continue to spiral. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think that if we want to be accessible, it ha- there has to be some commitment to having it cost a reasonable amount of money for the average family. I completely agree. And I hope we can get there. Me too. And it's, it's going to be a lot of work. And again, a lot of it I don't think is particularly like, oh, we'll just do X program. Right. I don't. I think it is more like very uh, nimble senior leadership and trustees really putting their heads together to see how they can chip away at it and make it a priority because it's easy to kick the can down the road. Oh yeah, that's what's been happening for thirty years. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and I will say the one other thing too that I used to always talk about it well on the hill, although nobody ever did it, which I don't blame them, but it's like also how many levers can you have? So right now, basically every year you have one lever, which is the tuition increase, mm-hmm. right? And um, and with 
some with some boarding schools they can you can break out the room and board, but mostly it's your pack one package. But are there different ways you can break out different pieces of the experience mm -hmm. and have different levers on those so that they're not all going up in one uniform group? And that also are there ways that families can more put together what they are looking for? Again, I don't know if that would save a ton of money, but um, I just wonder if there's just a different way to go about the pricing model. Yeah. So. I think that is a great place to end a jam-packed episode. <laughs> <laughs> Although I also feel like we could talk forever. So we might we might need to do a part two in All 2024. Right. There's well, I could any of these questions I could have talked for an hour on <laughs> really strongly about them. And I believe in independent schools. And I just think even with some small adjustments, you can really supercharge your operations on many levels. Well, and we're we're here to support you as you do, right? That's that's yeah. why we're here. And it's a great time of year for this episode. So I hope that people can listen to this and feel very energized and recharged and, and ready to take on the new challenges of a new school year, a new admission cycle. Julie, if people want to connect with you, which I know they will after hearing this episode, if they're not big fans already, where <laughs> can they learn more about you and the work that you're doing at Stony Creek? All right. I will give you two options. One is our beautiful brand new website, stonycreekstrategy.com. Um, you can make a time to meet with me directly. And I love networking with people. So I, I would encourage people to do that. And then the other thing is, please subscribe to Talking Out of School. You can find it on Substack. It's talkingoutofschool.substack.com. And my goal for that is I want to keep building that community so that eventually we can have a walled garden for comment section for subscribers. I want to also, I've, I've started building out an interview um, feature every month. I also want to build out a success stories feature every month. But I, you know, we need to keep building the community. And I want to be serving as many people as possible and then offer a space where people can connect with each other. So come and subscribe. Love that. Thank you so much, Julie. This has been, it has, I knew it was going to be a great conversation, but it was even better than I expected. So thank you for the time. Thank you for making me laugh. Thank you for sharing your keen insights with our audience. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being invited to come on.